I have a very unusual problem. I don't have a time machine. Now, I wouldn't travel back in time and tell my younger self to buy Apple stock or to inform my younger self which hot and single actress is going to be rich and famous and, you know, still hot in the future. No. I would go to only one time, to one place, to see one little boy, a cute and charming little guy with curly blonde hair and blue eyes, a boy with a disability who grew up in a small town in Germany. He could not run with the other kids or play soccer with them. He could not climb on their trees and he lost every fight that he got into. A boy who was laughed at a lot and left behind often. A boy who was scared and shy and ashamed. A boy who was most of all afraid of his own future, who thought that he would never have the same possibilities as everyone else and that there was nothing in the world that he could do about it. That boy was me. I probably gave that away when I said he was cute and charming, right? <laughs> Hello everybody and welcome to Tales of Changemakers, the personal development podcast about people who have made it their life's mission to make the world a better place. As we are all somehow navigating through the quarantine due to the coronavirus, I'm very excited to share with you the next episode with Michael Harold. In 2015, Michael delivered a speech at a TEDx event in Vienna where he talked about the things that he would tell his younger self if he ever got his hands on a time machine. He talked about the lessons that he had to learn in his life due to the neuromuscular condition that affected his mobility and also how much good can actually come from severe challenges like this. Today Michael changes people's lives. He works as a podcaster and a public speaking and self-confidence coach. His focus is on helping people become more self-confident, and as you will see, he does so with a great dose of lightness, fun, and humor. In this show, we will discuss Michael's early life and learn how his struggles with the condition have led him on a new path in life. We will also dig deeper into topics like how to train our own self-confidence and how to stay on track with our personal and professional goals, especially when things may feel a bit hard. For the listeners who can't see me, I'm using a wheelchair. I was born with a neuromuscular condition that's called um, spinal muscular atrophy. And what that does in simple terms is the nerve fibers that control my muscles, they slowly die. And so when I was a kid, I was still, you know, walking around, running around. And I wasn't the fastest, I wasn't the strongest, but I, I was out there. And then with the years going by and me growing, my strength went more and more and more down. So this is still an ongoing process. And so at that point in the, in the story, I was, I think, 32 years old or something. Um, my, my disability had really taken a turn for the worse. So I felt really not good. I felt very weak. I felt very exhausted. I mean, I'm used to that. Like that, that has been my life. But at that point, it was just, it was a tremendous like, leap toward the worse. I felt, you know, a lot worse than, than ever before. 
And on top of that, I was unemployed at the time. I was living at my dad's place because I didn't have any money. And I just turned you know, 32 or something. So that's not where most people picture themselves when they're 32. And so one day, what I decided to do as I got up in the morning was I wrote a list with all of the things that because of my disability, I can't do. And those were things from jobs, the things that I wanted to do in my life, activities that I thought I would really enjoy. And I wrote all of that down and I got really angry because I realized that I'll never be able to do that. Like this will never ever happen. And no matter how hard I try, no matter what I do, those things will never be a part of my life. And so I'm sitting there, first I'm angry, then I start crying. And, and then something clicked in my head and I said, you know what, screw this shit. I'm going to try this. Like, I'm going to try if I can somehow make that happen. If somehow I want people to tell me you can't do this. This is not going to happen. You're not strong enough. You're not enduring enough. You're not fit enough, whatever. This is not happening. And I wanted to hear that from people. And then I would give up and then I would be okay. You know what? At least I tried. So I set out with my biggest dream at the time. And that was a dream that I had. I was probably like four, five, six years old. It was like at the beginning of school when I developed this dream. And that was to fly in a hang glider. And the reason for that is actually, um, I grew up with a movie called Naushika of the Valley of the Wind, which is a Studio Ghibli movie. No, that's not right. It's a Hayao Miyazaki movie before Studio Ghibli even got started, I think. Um, your listeners can correct me if I'm wrong there. And the movie is about a teenage girl that flies in this in this glider. And imagine this little, little Michael. Every weekend when I visited my dad, I would watch that movie. Like, every weekend. I was like, Dad, I'm here. I want to watch Naushika. And that movie really sparked that love for flying in me. And so when I had that bucket list, on top of it all was flying a hang glider. So I called those clubs where they, where they do that kind of stuff and I told them that I can't really walk that well, I can't, I can't run at all. And they said, well, Michael, you know, in order to get up into the air, you kind of have to run a little bit. You might have to jump off a mountain, you know. Can you? And it's like, that's not, that's not going to happen. Um, but I did find one um, airfield and they said, you know what, that's actually not a problem at all. Like, I can totally see us do that, you know, swing over here, be here on... We have time on the weekend, so you know, move over here. So I went to I went to that airfield, and I thought that you just climb into that glider, and of course you, you can't fly by yourself. You need a license for that, so it was a tandem flight. And I thought you just climb into that thing, and and that's it, right? But it's you, you have you have to wear a flight harness that is like it's as heavy as I am. It, it's like so so heavy, and. I couldn't even move once I, once I had that flight harness on. And so there were like so many people that came together and they helped me get into the glider. And they, like, they would support me, they would you know, move things around. It's like incredible how there were six things with this glider, this mic with a flight harness and six people around him like pulling arms and legs and putting everything in place. And, and then we took off. We took off and so the way that they made this happen was where usually you go into the glider and you jump off the mountain. What, or, or you run, um, what they did was they had a second glider. So they were kind of like towing one glider up into the air with a motorized glider, mm-hmm. like one car towing another one, basically. Mm-hmm. And then up there, a thousand meters up in the air, that second glider left us and went, went back 
um, back down and landed. And we were up there in a thousand meters. And that's that's a weird number wow. that doesn't really like connect with people. Mm -hmm. But imagine that when when you look down, you can see cars and you can see houses, but it's like looking down at a miniature train track. Mm -hmm. You can't see people anymore. They're too small. And then you have all those little white dots below you and you realize those are actually the birds that before you know were so high above you mm -hmm. and all that's between you and all of that is just a piece of cloth that keeps you up in the air so you hear the wind you have the, the rush of air in your face and that's it that's that's all there is up there and i felt so alive being up there and then the pilot is flying and he he yells up to me, he says, Michael, you fly now. Come on, you, you'll fly. And uh, I was like, oh, okay. So I, I reached around that guy and I grabbed that flying bar that you use. And I flew. So 32 years, what, 28 years, 25 years after that dream developed, I was up there and I was flying. And in that moment, I realized that all of those things that I thought I couldn't do, they're all in my head. All of the stuff that I told myself I couldn't do, I was probably wrong about that. Most of that was in my head. So when we landed, my mindset had shifted. I was thinking completely different. I knew that all of that stuff in one way or another, I can make that happen. And so half a year later, I'm living in New Zealand. I'm working as a character animator on um, a TV show that at the time was the highest ranking 3D animated TV show in the world, The Penguins of Madagascar. And after that show, I then moved over to work on a TV show for Kung Fu Panda. And one day, living in New Zealand, I think a year after I wrote that list, I'm sitting at the beach during my lunch break, and I remember that I wrote this list on my phone. So I, I kind of, you know, put my phone out, I brushed the sand off, and I opened that bucket list again and I realized that everything I'd written down from hang gliding, sail gliding, bungee jumping, dancing, skate, uh, jet skiing, surfing, uh, meeting, meeting so many people that I wanted to meet all my life. Like I had checked off every single thing mm -hmm. on, on that list. Mm -hmm. And I didn't even realize. It, was, it really hit me. It's like, oh, whoa, holy shit, like this, when did that happen? Like, this is a year. This, I wrote this a year ago. When did all of that happen? Yeah. And at that point, I realized that I can really do two things with my life now. I can either keep working in the industry and I can make good money and travel the world and retire and die. Or I could be that person that I didn't have as a kid. Like that person that tells me, you know what, you can do this. And, and not like in a in a woo-woo motivational, oh, you can do this, but, but really, like, look, this is how you approach this. This is how you challenge your beliefs. This is how you set goals. This is how you decide on processes. This Basically not, not that, come on, just, you can do it. I believe in you because, that, uh, I don't know, I'm not a fan of that. But, but like really, like actually, that, that stuff that I would have liked to hear when I was a teenager. That's the kind of person that I wanted to be for people in my situation now. So I quit my job, um, I came back to Germany and I started training as a public speaker. And I was, I was super lucky that my big role model, like a person that had a tremendous effect on, on my own development, um, a guy by the name of Sean Stevenson, 
he unfortunately passed away a few weeks ago, he was the person I was looking up to because of all the motivational speakers and self-development gurus out there. Like this was a guy who was living with osteoporosis imperfecta with brittle bone disease. So he was like not even a meter tall. He was also using a wheelchair. And he was up there on stage telling people to, you know, move their butts and, you know, get out there and live their life. And, and this was the guy I really connected with. So he actually trained me up to become a public speaker. It's just really, um, I think, a very inspiring story. So really thanks for sharing it. I think one thing that I want to add is that mm. my goal wasn't really to become a public speaker. Mm -hmm. My goal was to get that message out there. If I, as a 10-year-old, 12-year-old, would have met like the Michael then, I would have believed in myself like so much. If, if there's a guy who can do this, who can overcome that stuff and still, you know, live those dreams and do all of that stuff, then I can do that too. I've heard a couple of people say that the things that we are best at doing are the things that come from our own pain, yeah. from our own experience. So I think that those are exactly the types of things that make us, you know, do our best and maximize our potential. It sounds like you had a similar story. It's really that's, amazing. That's, yeah. that's a, such a beautiful way of putting it that mm. the, the strongest people out there, they're those that went through struggle after struggle after struggle. Not that they wanted to, it's not like they say, you know, I want to get really strong, let me find some, you know, tough challenges out there. But uh, we humans, we always go the path of least resistance. And if you let us, all we do is eat ice cream, sit on the couch and watch Netflix. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, well, you know, fortunately in, in air quotes, life does throw challenges at us. We've heard that you went through this big transformational experience and that your decision to pursue a different path had a lot to do with your desire to become the person that you needed to be there for you when you were a teenager. Is this why you became a confidence coach and how did you discover this particular passion? So as a public speaker, I was, I was traveling, I was, I was giving talks and one of those talks was a TEDx here in Vienna where I spoke about that flying and bucket list journey at, at length. And so imagine this, I'm at the Volkstheater here in, in Vienna, over a thousand people in the audience. I give this talk to standing ovations. I thought I was confident. I thought, you know, I got this. Like this is I rock and roll, right? This doesn't get better, doesn't get more confidence than confident than what I was doing here. And a week or two later, um, there was a confidence building workshop happening in Vienna. And it was really small. Those were two guys um, organizing this thing in their living room. And I had seen this on Couchsurfer several times. And it was called a um, comfort zone crusher meetup. We'll go out of our comfort zone. We do silly challenges to build up our confidence. And I thought, uh, oh, come on, you know, what are these guys going to teach me, right? I, I just mm -hmm. after giving that talk. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I was kind of intrigued, so I went there. And so this was like a three-hour event, I'm going to say, with a lot of self-development work. And then at the end of it, we went out into the busy streets of Vienna to do comfort zone challenges. Mm -hmm. And the ones that I had picked for myself was that I wanted to um, give high five to strangers. I wanted to tell them a stupid joke. And I wanted to purposefully get rejected by like asking them stupid stuff like, can I have your pants? Can I have your dog? Or, you know, stuff mm -hmm. where I knew people would reject me. And I was pumped up about this. I was so excited to go out into Kantner Straße and do that. And we arrived there 
And I was completely terrified. Like, I couldn't move. My hand would not come out of the pocket to high five people. I was completely, I, I didn't know what was happening. It was, it was November, it was cold, I was trembling. I was, I was, I was sweating um, and I was just panic. So one of, one of the guys, um, he's, he's a very dear friend of mine now, he coached me through that. And he was like, okay, Michael, that person over there, high five. And I couldn't do it. And then he would walk up to that person and say, excuse me, sir, um, my friend wants to give you a high five. I was like, come on, man, don't, don't do this. <laughs> But um, he, he pushed me through this and half an hour later, I was beaming. I was smiling from ear to ear. Like I was lucky my head didn't fall off. I felt so alive because I was out there. I was interacting with people. I made them smile. I made them laugh. Like I high-fived this tiny little like, two-year-old girl. And then the dad comes after me. He's like, oh, what's happening now? And he's like, hey, I want to high-five too. And it was just, it was, it was hilarious. And I realized that I want this in my life. I want this confidence in my life and I knew that I had to work to get it and so at the end of the workshop I go to these two guys and I say hey remember this face every week I'm going to come to your workshop every week until I have this figured out mm -hmm. and they look at me and they shake their head and they say you know sorry next week is the last one and then we're moving away from Vienna I said hey you know I don't know how to do this but if it's okay with you I will take these workshops over and I will run them I have no idea how I'm going to take a lot of the people that have gone through the workshops like many more times than I did and I'm going to bring them in and all of us together will organize them. And they said, yeah, go ahead, do it. And so we did. So for one and a half years, these workshops were happening in my living room every Saturday afternoon, except for Christmas, like literally every single Saturday, 80 or no, you can do the math, 80 or 90 workshops almost 2,000 people coming through. I only did that because I needed it. I did this for myself. Mm -hmm. But what happened over time was that on one side, I got fairly good at this, at doing this myself, like going out of my comfort zone. And I also, I think, got really good at coaching it to other people because I'd done it like every Saturday, same thing, go out with people, teach them, support them, see what they're struggling with. And because I was struggling with exactly the same stuff a few months earlier, I knew what was going through the head and what they were battling with. Based on all the experience you have gathered while teaching self-confidence, what techniques do you think work best? I find it far more powerful to work with a small group of people or even individuals mm -hmm. and really dig in, like really dig in for a couple of weeks and really make that change happen because you go, and this is why I said that I'm not so much a fan of motivational speaking earlier, uh, because people leave the room after a talk and they're all pumped up and they want to do that stuff and they're super pumped. And then they wake up the next morning and it's like, oh, where's that motivation? I need another motivational talk to get me on my exercise bike. I need another motivational talk before I can eat that apple. I need another mood. Because the motivational speech... It's like a sensation, right? It gives you some sort of adrenaline for yeah, a moment. Gives a yeah. It gives you a boost and gives you ideas, but then you need all the tools and systems and processes and the community around you yeah. to actually do this, right? Which is the much, yeah. much more difficult part. And now combine this with the big challenges that life throws at us yeah. that we talked about before. Yeah. Take a person who has some form of challenge in their life, be that self-inflicted or they picked it themselves, and now, take that big challenge that's kind of hard to work through and try to solve that by getting that motivational fix every time you need to act. What are you going to do? Like binge watch um, 
I don't know, or you know, have a long list of, of cat memes on your phone that motivate you. That's not how it works. It's like you're trying to, um, <laughs> I feel like I said, I'm digging myself into a hole with that metaphor, but it's like motivation is like, it's like paper. It burns very quickly, but it, then it's gone, it's poof. And here's where the metaphor is gonna fall flat. With paper, you can't really set a forest on fire. See where I was going with that? Like the metaphor is not, <laughs> it's not, it's not that good. But like, motivation is like, it's like that paper. It goes poof and it burns really quickly and then it's gone. But if you want to like, go through a big challenge, you need that, you need that log to burn. And that, that happens through, well, other things than, than motivation. So I think this is a really cool era to discuss. And it's on this whole issue around self-confidence and lack of self-confidence and even though, in my opinion, people don't want to admit it, most of us have this challenge in our life, so in our professional life, private life, whatever. Is it the way we are being brought up? Are these the societal norms that actually take away our self-confidence? Or is there anything else that maybe you have identified throughout your coaching experience? I'm sure there is specific research being done on that. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll give you my own take, though couple of things. One is we live in a global society now. So 100 years ago, 200 years ago, what, who did you have to compare yourself to? Your small little village, maybe even just you know, your family, your siblings, and that was a supportive environment. Now you have social media and you open that up and suddenly you realize that everyone is better than you. Everyone has better vacation, better car, better boyfriend, girlfriend, better food, better six pack, better everything. That's just how social media works because guess what? You open up your newsfeed and you are basically um, exposing yourself to a curated life of all of your friends. And I see that every time I, I open up Instagram, it's like, ah, why, why, why am I not on vacation? Why am I not in a, in a you know, ocean, in a, in a blue ocean right now? Why, why am I not eating that great salad right now? It's like, you know what, because I did yesterday and because, you know, that blue sea that happened a few years ago. That's why. So, you know, it's easy if you compare yourself to uh, 7 billion people out there to realize that you are not the best one. You're not, you know, living up to to all of that. Um, And then add to that, um, we don't live in those close-knit communities anymore, so the support system falls away as well. And when you come home from work and you've just been, you know, in a shouting match with your boss or whatever, you kind of come home and then you sit there by yourself and you're like, what did I do wrong? What, what, why, why did I make that mistake? Why, 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 why? Whereas when you, again, put this back in the context a hundred years ago, you'd come home and, you know, there would be hugs and there would be support and people would talk. And even if you have those people at home, Nowadays, they'd much rather like be on Instagram and Facebook instead of you know sitting together over that family dinner, and and having um, that that conversation about those things. It, it comes down to to shame to a certain degree, and because we look up to everyone else who's so much better than we are, mm-hmm. we're now no longer able to share those struggles that we have, and boom! Now no one talks about those struggles, so shame becomes even bigger. Um, Brene Brown that says that shame can only grow in the darkness the moment you bring it out it withers and dies and um, that is that I mean shame is a, is a strong word but even even when you dial that down from shame to something like that's much much weaker than that it's still it's still the seed of something that that can grow and lastly <laughs> as a confidence coach I'll say this um, 
Confidence is like motivation. It's a, it's a tricky concept. There are various definitions of confidence out there. And in my work, I define confidence as doing the stuff that's important for you. Doing whatever it is that you want to do in that moment that because it's important to you, be that to ask that person out or talk to those people at the party, talk to that person at the networking event. When you do that, you're confident. That's, that's my definition of it. I don't know how much that is rooted in like the, the clinical definition, but I think, I think it's, a, it's a fairly easy one to act on. And again, we're back in that loop with motivation because now people say, first they need to become confident. First they need to feel like a runner. At first I need to feel like I'm like super runny and super, and I'm gonna get these super fancy shoes and the super fancy sports watch and, and all of that stuff. And then I'm gonna feel like a runner and then I'll be able to get up at five in the morning and go for a run. And that never, ever happens, no matter how many sport watches you have. What works instead, though, is that your alarm goes off at 5 in the morning, you put on your shoes, you put on your track pants, you put on your sports watch, and you go for a freaking run. And you run for a few minutes, and suddenly you're like, hey, well, this is actually cool. I enjoy this. And that's because our emotions are always contingent with our behavior. So you do a certain thing, and your mind goes like, okay, I'm doing this anyway. I might just as well enjoy it. So that's how you go into that. And then you do that often enough. And after a couple of weeks, you wake up and you think, you know what, I'm a runner. But it doesn't work the other way around. It's not like first get the idea I'm a runner in your head and then it works. And it's the same thing with confidence. Like first, first I need to get confidence and then I can ask that person out. Well, guess what? That's, it's just like the idea with running. The behavior that you want to do consistently, whether you feel air quotes confident or not and you consistently go to networking events and you talk to people and you consistently um, ask people out that you want to date or you constantly go to social events and you start talking to people there and or whatever it is or public speaking whatever it is that you lack that confidence it only comes in through behavior that's that's it consistent behavior builds up that that confidence Absolutely. It does require a bit of work, right? Yeah. That's what you're saying. Because there's a bit of a gap between 5 a.m. in the morning and 5.05. In theory, I can be already dressed up and ready to go. <laughs> but there's this 4 minutes, 59 seconds where many things can happen. <laughs> <laughs> many things like the snooze. <laughs> okay, it's going to be work to get up and get over this inner demon and actually get up and put on that stuff and go for a run. It's going to be work. But that's actually work that works. The, the other work you could be doing is lie in bed and go like, I'm going to do some positive affirmations and visualizations and then maybe if I do that, I'll feel like a runner and then it's going to be easy to get out of bed and go for a run. That's also hard work, but it doesn't work. It yeah, doesn't yeah, work. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. you know, you can throw your work in one direction or the other and my proposal is that you actually throw it in a direction where um, that change is actually going to happen yeah but okay direction of the action and kicking my own butt at 5 a.m in the morning is what will get me going that's good no i, I really that's good I, that's why i like this running <laughs> example so much because everyone goes like oh man that just sounds painful and it's that's what we I learn mean. as well like this is again you know feel con go into the self-development aisle in the bookstore and you read stuff like um uh, the, the subtle art of, of not giving a fuck as if that's you know something you, giving a fuck is something you can you can control and that book is actually by the way um, fantastically good like surprisingly despite its catchy title it actually knows what it's talking about but there are other books like um, uh, uh, making up titles like always feel happy never feel anxious again 
um, the, the, the lucky code, the, the happiness code, the blah, blah, blah. And it all goes into, hey, you'll always feel happy. You'll never feel worried. You'll never feel anxious again. Yeah. And, and still, like, books come out and become bestsellers and people buy it. And then they think something is wrong with them because they're still not confident and they're still not happy. And every morning they wake up and they say, well, I'm going to read another chapter. And if that makes me confident, then I can go for a run. And 10 yeah. years later, they're still reading books. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I, would, I will, however, say that when it comes to self-development books, and that's the index at the end. Um, and that index at the end should not be a fancy page about just the author and a photo with their puppy, but it should list studies. It should list mm-hmm. books and studies. Any good book comes with footnotes that says, hey, it's been shown that talking to strangers when you're commuting to work is actually raising your happiness 15%. By the way, here's the, here's the you know, DOI and here's where you can read the abstract in the study. Mm-hmm. There is a lot of literature out there that talks about goal setting as a necessary requirement to become successful, whatever that means for everybody, and also to become more self-confident. What is your take on goal setting? Goals, goals, goals. goals yeah, goal I know. Goals. <laughs> <laughs> I like the idea of being goal-oriented or sort of results-driven, but I don't know how, you know, so maybe you can share a bit yeah. your thoughts on this. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And I'm actually, I'm actually going to tie this back to what we talked about just a minute ago. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the metaphor that... I like to use and it's going to be better than setting a forest on fire, I promise. So here's how most people live their life. Imagine that, well, we're in Vienna right now. Imagine that what we want to do is get in the car and drive to Paris. That's what I want to do. Now, how most people approach this, metaphorically speaking, is they sit in the passenger seat and their thoughts and their emotions, they're behind the driver's seat. So if they're thinking the right thing and they're feeling motivated and the right thing, then they're on the way to Paris. So their job as a passenger kind of is to get the right thoughts and the right emotions into that driver in order to get to Paris. That's their job. Think the right stuff, motivate. Basically, you know, somehow get that driver to think the right stuff. That's their approach. And that's horrible because you can't really control what you're thinking or feeling. So you're driving all over the map and you blame yourself for not making it to Paris. What, what I'm doing in my work is I, I, I teach people to switch roles. So they take the driver's seat and they're holding the steering wheel and their thoughts and their emotions, they're on the passenger seat. They're there for the ride and they will tell you things like you're driving too fast, you're driving too slow, you just ran a red light, you just ran over a, a grandma with a walker, you, you don't know what you're doing and, and so on. It's still going go on like that, but you are driving and you can not wait um, until that person that passenger gets out of the car before you start driving you have to learn to drive while your thoughts and your emotions are still there with you and they don't mean you no harm even just picking all the negative stuff out you know it's not that helpful so there you are you're driving and you have two pedals you have a brake and you have a gas and the, the gas pedal is basically those are your your goals and, and your values and your processes and we'll get to that in a bit and the, the break, those are your negative thoughts and emotions that come up. So what I do in my work with my clients is I teach them to first get the foot off the brake so their thoughts and emotions don't slow them down anymore. And then also teach them to put the foot on the gas. So be very clear on their goals and, and their values. 
and did that did that metaphor make make sense? Did, 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 they, yes. did they get that across? So the the values are the gas pedal. <laughs> values and, and goals. Yeah, that's what values that's what, what drives mm -hmm. people forward because mm -hmm. challenges are you know they're they're hard most of the time. So you want to know um, why you're doing this. You want to know why you work on your confidence, why you work on your health, why you work on your education. It's, it's so much easier to eat ice cream and watch Netflix. So why are yeah. you doing that stuff? Because, you know, it's the higher the higher purpose. Mm -hmm. So it's okay to have goals, but uh, it's important to then also have these values that yeah. actually help you yeah. achieve those goals. So what would be the examples of, of values? So, or? Well, let's, let's look at, let's look at yeah. goals first because mm -hmm. values have this important... The, the amazing thing with values is they they fill all the gaps that goals leave. So when you have a goal like I want to get that job, um, I want to have a partner and a house, um, and whatever you know, fill in goal of of choice. So that's all cool. Like I want people to have goals. That's important thing. And most people know what goals are, but there are a couple of problems that come with goals, and people don't take them into consideration. And the problems that you have with goals is. A, they're very far in the future sometimes. Like, talk about a partner and a house. You know, you, you'll get a couple of years in the future, maybe. Um, if you want to become the CEO of that company, guess what? That might take quite a while. Okay. Um, also, next problem is that it's not always in your power. Like, someone else has a say in that. Sometimes, spoiler alert, goals don't happen. Now, you look at people that are very goal-driven and they're, they usually have a very fragile sense of self-esteem because they reach the goal, they feel good, um, they, they don't reach it, and they feel shitty. Mm -hmm. and but even if they reach the goal, they, they are right onto the next thing, Exactly. Right? Yeah, you it's have like the, hedonic, the hedonic yeah. adaptation. You reach a goal, yeah. you party a little bit, <laughs> and then you're just like, okay, what's next? Mm -hmm. What's next? And then it's like a hamster wheel. This is where values come in. So... Think about the, the goal, like the endpoint in your GPS, Paris, and a value would be a direction, west, east, north, toward the sun, toward the ocean, whatever. So goals are desired outcomes, and values are desired qualities of ongoing action. So think about a value like a spice that you put over a meal, and it's just a little bit, but you know, it makes the meal so much better. So. My personal values right now are hope, gratitude, love, integrity, laughter, and health. Now, contrast that with my, with my goals. Um, my goals I'll check off at one point or I won't. But those six values, every day I can live them. Every day I can come into this interview with love and gratitude and some, some laughter as your listeners have been victim to. Um, I can, you know, I can go into work and maybe I screwed up at work, but the moment I bring integrity into the entire thing, you know, that's, this is, this is success. Like this is, this is me. Goals ask you, what do you want? But values ask you, what do you want to stand for as a human being? Mm -hmm. And you can literally use them with everything you do. Not all of them at the same time. I mean, I'm at a, if I'm at a funeral or you know relative is sick i'm not going to use laughter that's probably not you know not appropriate in that situation but i can have a party with friends and i can bring in health and choose you know the water over the i don't know <laughs> uh, unhealthy stuff um, i can go into a restaurant and order the the salad instead of the deep fried mars bar i can 
write that email that I somehow screwed up because I forgot something and I can just pretend nothing happened or I can you know, write it with integrity. And the moment I do that, I'm Michael, like I'm there. That's what Michael wants to stand for. And that makes it very hard to fail because whatever you do at any point in time, wherever you are, those values can come in. And in the best of cases, you now have values that you live on. Goals are always about deadlines. Goals are always tomorrow in three years before the day is over and so on. But values are always about the present moment. So my values 10 minutes ago, I don't, right now, this is what it matters. Right now, this is where, you know, they, they kick in. And now you put goals and values together and you have an amazing combination where every day you live something that's really meaningful. And at the same time, you look forward to something that you set as a goal for yourself a few months or years in the future. Mm -hmm. And now you really have something that um, is tangible. And it's just, you know, bring it, bring it, bring it in. Whenever you feel like a task is difficult, whenever you're engaged in a challenge, make it a lot more meaningful by bringing one of those goals in. My classic example is always the email because I'm horrible at writing emails. That's always what I procrastinate on. And then I say, you know what? Um, the way I'm going to write this email now, I'm going to bring in integrity and apologize for the fact that I've procrastinated for two days. I'll bring in some laughter and I'll bring in some genuine gratitude and thank that person for you know, whatever it is we're engaging on. And suddenly, somewhat you know, troublesome task of writing the email becomes meaningful because this is the stuff that's important for me. When I listen to Emily, I feel happier for some reason, but it yes, sounds it's very... beautiful work. Yeah, it just feels really right. And I guess the starting point is for us to start doing that. I think right? the starting point is actually getting that concept out there because mm -hmm. values-based living is, for many of the people that I work with, it's like, wow, I've never heard of that. I never thought about that. It's always goals, goals, goals. If, if you had the choice between two gravestones where one says... Uh, Michael achieved this and this and this and this, or you had a gravestone that says Michael was loving, grateful, um, humorous, um, and so on. Like that's a better gravestone. Like that's that's the one that I want. Here's here's one important thing though. It's an, I mentioned this because it's a mistake that I see so many times, and that's people confuse goals and values. For example, when someone says, you know, my value is happiness. Mm -hmm. uh, because happiness is not something you can do. It needs to be something you can do. Happiness is a goal. Maybe you reach it, maybe not, but it's not up to you. Or getting respect and love, it's also a goal. But being loving and respectful, now that's something you can do. And instead of being confident, which is a goal, um, you could say, well, I'm going to be courageous. I'm courageously going to do this. And now... You can be in a challenging situation and say to yourself, okay, this is tough, but you know what? I'm going to do this courageously. I'm going to bring that part of myself into that task. That's why it's like that spice over a meal. Mm -hmm. it's, it, this idea about values-based living, it somehow ties very closely with these beliefs that we discussed, right? Because when you say, I'm courageous... It's who I am, right? That's what makes me. Hmm. And that's a belief that I also have about myself. Yeah, you do, you do some, anything, anything you do yeah. repeatedly. Yeah. And value is a perfect example of that because yeah. you do them every day. You yeah. do something repeatedly and that's who you become because you're defined by your, by your actions. Like that's yeah. what you do. Absolutely. No, this is 
super interesting and I kind of feel like we could talk about this forever <laughs> yeah. but I'm gonna just take this opportunity and invite you for another interview maybe in a couple of months if you find <laughs> the time be, that would be wonderful I mean there is one thing that specifically comes to mind which is the question of like boundaries and stuff right because we're talking about our values and our ways of looking at the world but then also in the interaction with the other world like mm -hmm. how do you actually Assert yourself, assert yourself and so forth because yeah. it's sometimes it's a bit unclear where the line is right or how to decide in specific situations that's <laughs> next to confidence and conversation skills like that's also one of the the big things that my clients want to get better at and it's mm -hmm. the idea yeah, well, setting boundaries in private and and and, and work lives and and negotiation, assertiveness and stuff. Basically, when you have to say, dude, until here and no further, yeah. that's when, you know, exactly. all of that comes together. Confidence and the, the conversation skills and so on. And that's like the, it's on the tougher side of the spectrum when it comes to that. Yeah. So yeah, let's, let's chat about that. Sounds that. like another big topic, but looking forward to that. So my last request to you is to finish three sentences. And I ask this everybody when I interview. Okay. okay. So the first one is, the best decision in my life was? <laughs> to follow my best friend's advice, who said, dude, you're a public speaker. You should see if there's any TEDx event where you can speak at and just write them an email. And I was like, that's crazy, but yeah, I'll do that. And then, then it worked out. It yeah. happened. Yeah, exactly. Would you say that was a life-changing experience yes. for you? Yes, it was. Mm -hmm. Because um, this event really opened... It opened my, my coaching career up. Mm -hmm. Because it's like... Here's the thing, you... Uh, I don't know, I'm expanding on your, your request to, un no, to finish the sentence. Actually, I want to ask into. about this, so now I'm happy that we came back See, to it. Here's the thing, a lot of... People, and not a lot, but there's a certain amount of emails that I get every once in a while from people that ask me, hey, I want to become a coach. How does that happen? And then I look that person up and they're like 21 years old and just about to finish college. And like, dude, why do you want to coach? You know, you need, how, how? like, yeah, coaches, I don't know if it's a fancy job or not. Um, I don't do it because it's a fancy job. I do it because I want to change the world. But you can't just, you know, become a coach because that's you know what you see people do and they sit under palm trees on a tropical island and they answer emails and make like five million dollars an hour it's not how much i make i just try it's a million dollars an hour and and then they would become a coach and so it's a it's a field that's hard to break in and i think that's good because you work intensively with people and you need to know what you're doing and for me the tedx talk was the, the thing that put me in a level where I could make it clear to people that I know what I'm talking about. And actually, um, I, I was talking with, um, so this, I still have to smile about this, when I had, I had a call, I had a talk with um, Dennis Tersh, who is um, the founder of the Compassion Focused Center in, uh, in the States, and right now he's the um, He's the president of the Association for Contextual Behavioral Sciences. And a few years ago, I spoke with him and I, I told him about uh, my TEDx talk. And he watched it and he said, you know what? This is, it's amazing how that stuff that you talk about there is so in line with acceptance and commitment therapy. And at that point, I didn't know much about acceptance and commitment therapy. But it had somehow turned out that the life lessons that I'd formed for myself were very much in line with exactly those tenets with 
behavior over feeling and you know go ahead and do that stuff mm -hmm. and and when I then wanted to do that workshop um, it was clear that Michael already knows some of the stuff because he's given that talk mm -hmm. when when the question came up if I wanted to work as a coach as a paid coach for the company again you know it's one thing being just someone who wants to be a coach and someone who is lucky enough to be given the opportunity to give a talk like that and kind of show to the world that there's something behind it. And I think a lot of people have something that, you know, put, would put them in the same situation I'm in, but I was just fortunate enough to be given those 18 minutes in the spotlight that um, enabled me to kind of, you know, display that to, to the world and those that wanted to hire me afterwards. So that's, that's why it was really life-changing for me. Mm -hmm. So this one email put you on a completely it was, different... It was two, it was two, two emails. emails. TEDx Vienna doesn't allow speakers to apply. Like they, they pick their own speakers. This is, these are the ones they want and then they fly them in. Or there's a longer process than that, but basically that's it's in a nutshell. So, but they do have a form on their website that says, um, who do you suggest as a speaker? So I figured, okay, let's do this. What's your name? Uh, Michael Harold. Who do you suggest as a speaker? Michael Harold. <laughs> and then I filled out the why and everything and I made it and I, it was horrible. I filled out the why I should speak there. It was like a formal letter of application, right? This uh, it's like this is what I already talked to you, you have some examples of my work and blah 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 blah. Mm -hmm. And then I was like, oh, that's not me. And I just deleted the entire thing and I started again. I said, you know what guys? This is about connecting. So um, let me just connect with you, tell you who I am and what I do and why it is important. And I'm not even going to read this or spell check it. I'll just write it out from the bottom of my heart and I'll hit, hit send. And, and that's that's what I did. And they said that after they read that, they said, well, they, they don't... Like, yeah, they have they nothing, just, nothing they, to add. It was, it was clear <laughs> that um, I, need to, I need to go up there, so... Okay, good. Uh, so the second uh, sentence is, um, the book that inspired me the most was the book that i would like to mention is not one of the many many books that i read but one of the many books that i read again and again and again and it's actually a novel um, and it's an, a series of novels and they're written by terry pratchett and it's the the Discworld series and these books just make me happy in the truest sense of the word like i i listen to them when I go to sleep, I turn, put the phone and the charger and I put the audiobook on and I set the timer for 30 minutes and I just listen to the book. And, and sometimes I, I start laughing and sometimes I just paint those pictures of those characters mm -hmm. uh, living their lives and living their adventures. And I can't turn on one of those books without starting to smile just two minutes later. And luckily, he wrote, I think, over 40 books in that series. So I just cycle through them. Mm -hmm. I literally, I have all of them as an audiobook. And when I finish one, I just go to the next, and I go to the next, and I go like to the Netflix. next. Like an Netflix. Yeah. And each one is like 10 hours long. But that is almost a meditation for me. That's when I focus on this one thing, and that's the story and the pictures that are painted and the... The, the humor that was that was woven in and and that really makes me happy and I was fortunate enough to meet um, Sir Terry Pratchett um, a few years ago and I told him that I said you know what uh, I've been reading your books for so long and 
they're a constant source of happiness for me. I turn your, I read your books and I become happy and I want to thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And for those of the listeners who wonder where to start now, I think the best one to start with is actually number six or seven in the series and it's called Guards, Guards. Okay, uh, uh, maybe one as of in, those. As in guard, uh, castle guard, door guard. The, yeah, yeah, the yeah, guy yeah. with a sword who doesn't let yes. you in, right? Yeah. Awesome. And okay, so the last one is happiness starts with? Happiness starts with the idea that I'm responsible for my life and no one else and nothing else. Uh, if I'm responsible for what I do and <laughs> the struggles and the successes and whatever it is I'm, I'm currently in, um, then that's my biggest shot at, at happiness. At the same time, um, coming back to my rant on happiness before, I I don't want my I don't want my gravestone to say Michael was always happy. I want my gravestone to say um, Michael changed a lot of lives for the better. And if that means I'm not as happy as I could potentially be if I devote my life to ice cream and Netflix, then, then so be it. Beautiful. Thank you so much. So how can our listeners find out more about you? Well, you can. I think the best place to start is Google my name and, and or you can, you can Google TEDx, um, what if I had a time machine. That's mm -hmm. my talk and they'll give you a little bit of a longer story than the one I told here. Um, I'm currently mainly coaching for The Art of Charm. And my um, eight-week group coaching program is, is called Core Confidence. So when you check out theartofcharm.com, um, you can um, you know, fill, out, fill out an application form and maybe work with me there. And if you just want me to shoot me an email, then you find me at michael at michaelherald.de. And uh, I look forward to reading from you. Awesome. Thanks so much. Thanks, Thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much, Michael, for sharing your experience with us and for the truly inspiring story. It all sounds so simple when you say it. I seriously don't know how you do it. For all the podcast listeners, I will include Michael's contact information in the show notes so that you can get in touch with him directly and find out more about his coaching work. As for me, I really appreciate Michael's point about the importance of values next to goals. I think that we all sometimes find ourselves in situations when we try to stay motivated but it just feels like there is yet another set of goals yet another set of goals as if it never ends it can just feel really overwhelming to me it does make a lot of sense to examine our values and to understand what is it that is important for us in our lives regardless of whether it is now or in six months or in six years I also like the pedal metaphor which Michael used to explain how we navigate the journey towards our goals, with the gas and the brake pedals always being part of the process and working in contradictory directions. It is very important to be aware of these forces that really effectively drive our decisions throughout the journey. And what is even more important is to remember that it is always us and not these emotions that are in the driving seat. I'm sure many of you have additional insights from this amazing conversation. If you would like to share them with us, please don't be shy to reach out and write on Facebook, on Spotify, SoundCloud or iTunes. I really hope that you enjoy the show and look forward to the next time. Have a wonderful rest of your day. But before we go,